0: Back in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, if you've got your Bible, open to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And um, we're going to make it through basically three verses this morning uh, because I got kind of captured by this verse. Uh, If you remember, we're calling this series Last Words, right? It's uh, how to live faithfully in the last days. Paul is writing his last letter to Timothy, his disciple, his co-worker, and he wants Timothy to capture the main things. What are the things that are really important for you to be faithful to God's call on your life and to carry the work forward, right? He's like, here's the baton. I want you to go as far as you can, or if you go another football uh, uh, you know, uh, analogy, here's the ball, make as many yards as you can in your life, and then you're going to hand that ball to somebody else, you're going to move the ball down the field, the plot of the story is going to move forward as Paul gives it to Timothy, and, and I had this thought that it's really fascinating because Paul is is, uh, is giving Timothy this thing as there's... there's um, Like generational wisdom which lasts forever, and then Timothy's going to have to take all that generational wisdom and contextualize it into new days. And and that's what we're doing in so many ways, is is we are trying to figure out how to take the historic generational wisdom of the scriptures and the people who've come before us and, and apply it to a different context. to to a different kind of world and today that's going to be kind of the focus is what does it look like for us to live faithfully i love the scripture in acts where it says uh, king david served the purpose of god in his generation and then he went to be with his forefathers david knew in my generation here's the mission it's not last generation it's not next generation it's in these days here's what it means for me to be faithful and uh, nt writes that at one time the most important question you can ask is what time is it What's happening in the world right now, and how do the people of God respond? What is God doing at such a time as this? And and I'm sure many of you have hit these points in life where you've had this thought, I have this thought a lot, where where it's, what got me here won't get me there. Have you had these thoughts before where you're like, man, the the kind of leadership, uh, the kind of attitude, the kind of uh, resources that got me from zero to 20 wouldn't get me from 20 to 40. And all that same stuff when I hit 40 and I looked ahead about what I wanted for my life and what God's doing. He just very clearly said, what got you here won't get you there to when you're 60. And guess what? You're going to hit 60 and you're going to learn a whole new way. I'm going to teach you new ways of being because what got you here won't get you there. And this morning, I think we're going to take a look at the church in these days and say, in many ways, what got us to this point of time in history and culture won't get us to where God wants to take us. We have to learn new ways of being, and and as I always try to preface, that new ways is really rediscovery of old ways. In the church, the new is always old. It's always going backwards to rediscover wisdom that feels new to us, but it's not new. We just forgot. We let go. We lost it, right? And it says in the Old Testament, it says, a generation came about that neither, neither knew the Lord nor his laws nor obeyed him. How did that happen in Israel? Well, just happened by a couple generations just begin living for themselves, begin listening to the, to the culture, they begin worshiping idols, and before you know it, they literally had lost the word of God. And then what happens, somebody's clearing out the temple because things are really bad and they find the book and they're like, oh, we found it, and they read it out loud and people repent and they pray and they recommit their life to God and you see what we would call revival. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this idea and see about what our response will look like. So chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. I love that Paul is always centering everything for the church on Jesus. It always goes back to the man Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. And then remember his story. Remember that he was raised from the dead. Remember he came from Debbie. Remember all these promises of Israel culminated in the person and life and work of Jesus Christ. Never forget like you can can get off where you think you're kind of about Jesus, but you're just kind of off a few degrees. And he's like, no, 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 come back to the center. All of this is based on Jesus. This is my gospel. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? It's Jesus Christ crucified, dying for your sins, risen again, in heaven awaiting and who will return. That's the gospel. It's, it's actually not complicated. It's really simple, but if we're not careful, uh, we'll forget the basics. Uh, I was at my very first ministry retreat, uh, was with, uh, Belle Isle Community Church way back in the day. I don't know. I think Todd's with the kids this morning, but Todd brought in a speaker, a guy named Bo Bochers, who's a big football coach and youth pastor in Chicago. And he told the story how every single camp, um, Vince Lombardi would start the camp holding a football and he'd look at his players and go, men, this is a football, (laughs) Every year, he'd start with the most basic thing, and they would rebuild their knowledge and practice every year from the ground all the way to the most complicated idea. And I love Paul's, like, Jesus Christ. Remember, remember, this is all about him. It's all for him. It's all through him. It's all because of him. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This week, as I I read this text and I was praying about uh, uh, what I should preach on, this sentence captured me. But God's word is not chained. Paul, in the middle of a Roman prison, chained likely to a wall... He looks at his present circumstances and he realizes my my life is going to exist from now until the end in about a three foot radius. (laughs) And I can either look at my life as chained and over or I can see beyond these chains to what God is doing in the world and how the word of God goes into the world and never returns void. He changed his perspective. He said the word of God is not chained And it started this thing for me to think about the areas of my life that feel bound up, that feel chained, that feel restricted, that aren't the way that I wish they were. I won't do a raise of hands, but I bet if I said, raise your hand, if you have something like this in your life, it would be 100%. Do you have anything in your life that isn't the way you feel like, oh, I feel like I'm not getting what I want here. I'm not able to fix it. I'm not able to do the things I think are right. I feel bound. And Paul's reminding us this, this morning that God's word is not chained. Even if you are chained, his word's not chained, which means we have hope. And we have power. And sometimes we even have more power in our chains than we have in our freedom. And we'll talk about that here in a second. So what does this look like? The word of God is not chained. And what are, what are some just, I wanted to just go really practical this morning for us is that the word of God, just number one, is not chained by our circumstances. So many times we interpret what God's doing in our life by our circumstances. So we see Paul right away. He's like, he's in prison. He's chained. He has nothing. Guess what? In prison in Rome in those days, the only way you would eat is if somebody brought you food. It wasn't like our prisons today where you get food and you get a bag. You get all the, it's like, no, that's why most people in prison starve to death because nobody came to visit them. Nobody brought them anything. Paul's completely dependent On the care of the Christians in Rome. But Paul, his circumstances are awful. And yet he says, God's word is not chained. What an incredible thing. And I start to think of my my life and the circumstances in which I'm living day to day. In the season of my life that I'm in. And if I'm not careful, I'll start to focus on the areas of my life where I'm bound. Rather than focusing on God's word, which is never bound. And trusting in his word and proclaiming his word and speaking his word and believing his word that it's true. Paul says this in Second Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. You ever wonder why he gave us jars of clay instead of jars of iron? or Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, like why did he give this precious gift into such a fragile container? And it feels like that sometimes we're carrying these precious things that God's given us and things that aren't protectable, right? Like you're just like, I, I see a couple of little bitty babies in here, right? When you have a brand new baby, you're literally just like, everything in the world seems dangerous when you have a little baby because you're just kind of like, this thing cannot protect itself and I'm terrified that I can't protect it either. And so if you're not careful, what will that do? It'll close down your life. Right? It'll just it'll make you scared and afraid and you'll hunker down in your home. And so it's like one of things Amy and I were like, when we had a little baby, we're like, we just gotta get out really quickly. As quickly as it's safe, right? So not, you know, it wasn't like the day after she had our baby, we're out. But it's like a couple weeks, we're like, We got to go back to church because we need somebody to sneeze around the baby and know that it's going to be okay, right? Like to know it's, you're not just like, oh, you know, like face shield or you, you just like start to protect your life. But Paul says we get this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. If God had made us into superheroes, we would be the hero of the story. We'd be able to protect our own life. We'd be able to fulfill our own purpose. We'd be able to exert ourselves in the world. And who does that sound like? That sounds like Satan. Satan didn't want to be an angel, like beholden, serving God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be the superhero. He wanted a suit. Isn't it funny that in our day and age, superhero movies are about the only movies you can make? What would it be like if we had ultimate power to protect ourselves in the world and do all the right things, all the right time, you know, all the right thing every time. But listen to what Paul says. This jar of clay he says we're hard pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. He's describing his circumstances in his daily life. What does his life look like? It looks like he's perplexed. He doesn't know what's happening all the time. Right? Even though Paul's like one of the most godly men who's ever lived, he's like, I don't know what God's doing in this moment. I, I'm perplexed. I'm struck down. I, I got knocked out. <laughs> I got punched in the face, and I'm on the mat, and the ref is going, one, two, three, and he's not moving, and everybody's like, he's out. He's not coming back. But I love he's like, we're, we're uh, listen to this, we're perplexed, but not in despair, Isn't that what we need today? We need people who can be perplexed, but not despairing. I don't know what's happening, but I know God's good. I don't know what he's doing, but I know he's doing something. I know it all looks like all evidence to the fact that God doesn't care about me. He's abandoned me, but I know he's good. I've heard too many stories. He's done too many things. I read the word of God. I know he's not done with me yet. Right? We're persecuted, but not abandoned. I'm not alone. Even though I feel alone, I'm not alone. And the more I speak the truth that I'm not alone, the less alone I feel. Isn't that interesting? The more I read God's word, and I proclaim these things over my life, I start to feel his presence. But if I speak aloneness over my life, what do I feel? I feel alone. I feel despairing. What you say about yourself and God creates things. It, 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 you can actually create your reality through proclaiming the truth in God's words and say, I am not alone. I was an orphan, I needed shelter, and guess what? God came and he rescued me. And he did it before, and you know what? He'll do it again. Job says, should I not receive trouble from uh, good from the Lord and not trouble? No, 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 I'm going to take everything this life has and I'm going to turn it into praise. I'm going to stay faithful, I'm not going to give up. Persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Every death we experience has the possibility of producing life in somebody else just all depends on how you respond to it. When you surrender it back to God and you say, God, I'm going to receive this thing in my life, whether it's illness or hardship or persecution or confusion and doubt, I'm going to turn it into a chance to praise you and be faithful and obey so that my death might produce life in somebody else. Because death can only produce death, right, the world's way, but death that gets surrendered to Jesus, death that goes to the cross with him and into the grave can come back out again alive and breathing. That's what Christians do in the world. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 6, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited, discredited, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love and truthful spirits, speech, speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, um, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. what kind of impact would this kind of uh, person make in today's world what's the result of this kind of life in a world that is dying of despair in a world that's anxious and afraid and medicated and unhealthy and all the stuff of our society that we are reaping the rewards of 50 years of denying God's existence his power his goodness What would happen if these kind of Christians start popping up in businesses and in schools and in neighborhoods, in government, in media, in all these areas of the world that have just been taken over in academia. On a college campus, this kind of person just pops up out of nowhere. And people are like, have you met that guy who has nothing yet possesses everything Have you met that woman who's going through severe hardship and yet her countenance is joy? She has something that I don't have. She possesses something I don't possess. I've got to figure out what that is. And it's not coming because my life is happy clappy. It's coming because I have joy. Joy that doesn't come from circumstance. Paul says, he's like, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles, in the city, in the country, at sea. I love this. (laughs) He's just like, my life has been hard. Think about all this stuff, and yet Paul is persevering. One of the questions I ask myself consistently is, how much resistance does it take to put me off course? That's one thing I ask myself all the time. How much resistance, how much of a push from the life or the enemy does it take to keep me from coming to church, to showing up for prayer, to saying yes to coffee with somebody who I know is going to ask me, how are you doing? How's your soul? How's your heart? How's your life? How's your marriage? How's your parent? Like, how much does it take to get me off course? my, My desire is to be that like immovable object. Be like, there's nothing that could get me off this path. I'm going to show up for the things that God has called me to over and over and over again, regardless of how I feel or what I think or what I know. I was telling somebody this week, my my dad um, uh, was a college professor for 27 years at Mid-America. 27 years, he never had a sick day. I just want you to consider that. 27 years He never missed work. And that was while he was refereeing six to seven nights a week to make extra money. Just day after day after day, the grit and toughness to show up for life. in thick and thin and good and bad and illness. Like with with sometimes very little to show from like an American success prosperity idea. And yet he just said, I'm going to keep showing up for my life. I'm going to keep going. And you know what they did is they went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every prayer meeting, everything. They just said, I'm not going to allow anything to keep me from God's purpose in my life. I'm going to keep going. Circumstances are not going to dictate my life. So your circumstances today are either opportunities or they are opportunities for gratitude and glory. So the gratitude comes that even when I'm chained, I can say, God, I'm so thankful that you're not chained, that your word isn't chained, that you're not bound by my circumstance, and I'm going to trust you in the midst of this valley. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to fear evil or any enemy. I'm going to trust the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humility says, God, you get to choose when these chains come off. I'm not going to spend my life trying to do everything I can to get out of every situation I can that's painful or confusing. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do all the things I know you ask me to do. But I'm just going to humble myself because when God exalts you, guess what? No one can take you back down. When you exalt yourself, when you build your own platform, when you raise yourself, guess what? There are going to be people just just chopping that thing constantly. When God lifts you up because you've been humble, like you're not going to get taken out at that point. Or I would say if you do, it's because he's like, okay, now you're going to go back down and you're going to humble yourself again and you're going to go back up. But it's all because of his work where you just go, okay, I trust God. If I need to decrease in this season, I'll decrease. If you want me to increase, I'll increase. I'm just watching for you. But the word of God isn't chained by your circumstances. One of the things Andy and I worked really hard on, we had, had twins. Any, uh, some of you in here have twins. And when you have twins, a really interesting thing happens, which is everyone who's had twins before you comes to you and tells you all the horror stories of having twins. <laughs> And you're like, you realize this isn't that helpful because we can't get out of this. This isn't like we're going to buy a house and we've got a, like, a little bit of chance to like back out. You're like, we're having twins. And so we, uh, we kept getting all this stuff and finally we sat down. And I was just like, Annie, and, and if you know Annie, you know that she prayed for twins. So this was an answer to prayer that we had twins that I didn't think that prayer was going to be answered, so I didn't pray against it. <laughs> Turns out. So I was just like, all right, Lord, whatever you have. So then we got it. I was like, okay, so you prayed for twins. God answered in a really cool way, and we've got tons of stories around that. And I said, here's what we're going to do. Everyone's told us this is going to be terrible. It's going to suck. It's going to be so hard. You're never going to sleep, all this stuff. And I said, we're going to make a commitment. We will never complain about having twins. That's our commitment. We will never complain to another person. We'll support each other. We'll pray. We'll love our kids, and we're just going to. We're going to work hard. And you know what? It was the easiest transition we had. Going from three to five children was the easiest one we had. You know why? Because our circumstances, we weren't dictating our life by our circumstances. We were just making a choice to say, God, this is your thing. So an interesting thing is happening. I watched a, a, um, a documentary, I don't know, a year or two ago, and it was very popular in a certain stream of conservative Christianity. And I can't remember the name now, but it was all about the prosperity gospel. You guys probably know what documentary I'm talking about. It's an American something. I don't know. But it was like, it's this thing. Lots of people are like, it's the best thing I've ever watched. And I watched And I thought, this thing's so stupid. <laughs> and this is my life. You're like Whenever everybody thinks something's awesome, I watch and I'm like, I don't know. What, what? And here's why I thought it was stupid. It's because it was a documentary made for all the people who already agreed with it. It was like, hey, can I make you a documentary that make you hate the people you already hate? And you're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm like, this doesn't... Because all these people had rejected that form of prosperity gospel. The kind which is like televangelists, send your dollar in, you'll get an answer, prayer, all this stuff. They'd, they'd already rejected it, so it was just felt like, to me, like kind of piling on. and I was just kind of like, I didn't make this much sense. And then I read about another kind of prosperity gospel, and I thought, if these people watched this one, I would be super impressed. Because Mark Sayers described this. He says, you know, the prosperity gospel is garishly hawked by televangelists, where we subtly imbibe. The, um, whereas, on the other hand, we... Many of us are at danger of subtly imbibing uh, the implicit prosperity uh, gospel through through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to be leading amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. In a church that has pursued the strategy of cultural relevance, we only have to trawl through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel, live in cool neighborhoods, hang with interesting people, have incredible marriages, or rock the single life and connect with the most amazing people, the more we view this, the more uh, a belief inside of us rises. The belief is that if we do the stuff of Christianity, read our Bibles, help the poor, worship passionately, move the sound equipment without groaning, we will get a slice of the awesome Christian life. So there's a subtler prosperity gospel operating right now that you can have it all. You can have it all. You can be a Christian and have all the best things of the world and do all the coolest things and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's weird because Satan is so insidious. He knows that you're going to reject this other kind, but you might be really susceptible to wishing your life was like somebody else and then being working hard every day to try, like, how do I get better? How do I get more? How do I have the kind of life that people look like? Oh, And we start to assign that person must be really godly. Look at all the good things happening. And then we look at Paul. What would Paul's Instagram feed have looked like? Guaranteed, he wouldn't have had many followers. It would have been like, I can't watch any more of those stories. It's so depressing. His reels, goodness. I was just like, oh. You know, I just like... So this morning, I I want us to really consider how much we judge... um, how free we are in life based on our circumstances. Based on where we feel freed or chained rather than our freedom being dependent on our relationship to Jesus and his word, his truth over our life, his work. The second thing I see is, is not just our circumstances, but the word of God's not chained by the power structures of the world. Here's one thing that I think is so real right now, because we consume so much news, so much rhetoric, so much junk in the world that we begin to think like, I don't know how this is all going to change. Right? We're watching Israel and, and Palestine, we're watching the Gaza thing, we're watching stuff all over the world, we're watching our own political structures in, in our country right now just basically feel like they're falling apart, and we're just like, man, the word of God must be bound because this, how could it not be bound if we look at this? And yet Jesus stands in front of Pilate. And Pilate says, take him and crucify him. Jesus, Jesus is standing there and Pilate's like, hey, just go, go for it, crucify him. But you guys crucify him. They say, we can't, you need to do it. Everyone's trying to, trying to get out of this. They all want him to die, but nobody's willing to take responsibility for his death. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. He looks at Jesus and says, where do you come from? Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Isn't this interesting that in, in, in front of the most powerful person politically in Israel, Jesus just refused to speak. With, with, with so many words being batted around in the world in these, in these places, like it's fascinating that he, he's just unwilling to answer questions, that he's like, this, you're missing the point. Pilate says this, don't you realize I have power over you, either to crucify you or free you? Pilate goes to the power route. He's like, I hold the power. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus looks at the power structures of the world and says, it looks like I'm in chains right now and you have all the power over me, but you have no power. Because I lay my life down freely and I pick it up back again. You cannot control me. The ones that the power structures of this world have, the, the power they have over us is when we give them power over us. When we stake our careers on positions and say, as long as I have that position, that amount of money, that amount of power, those kind of friends, it means my life is thriving and I'm important. And so what do we do? We chain ourselves to the power structures of the world rather than being free in the midst of The power structure of the world doesn't mean we abdicate That stuff it means we go into those places And say you can fire me tomorrow And I don't care You can take all my money and my reputation It doesn't matter Because my life isn't Staked on this structure My life is staked on another That's why martyrdom For the most part has been the most powerful Witness of the world because the world's most powerful Thing over you is death And when Christians stand in places and they die all of that power gets robbed of them. But it's not just death like martyrdom. When you're willing to die small deaths in your workplace, over your ego and your pride, over your prejudice in your heart, over whatever it is, when you're willing to say, hey, I, I, you don't hold that power over me, you can't scare me, but also I'm not going to hold my power over you. I'm going to lay all this down and I'm going to serve people and love people. I'm not afraid. It shakes things up and it makes you aware that God's word's not bad because then what happens is God's word starts working on your behalf and things start happening that you can't explain other than you letting go of these kind of structures and powers. Yeah. Acts uh, Acts, uh, five, it says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put the apostles to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, uh, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and the followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and the followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting God. Th- that wisdom to say, listen, like these power structures, everything you have can be brought to bear against these men, but if it's from God, it will fail. All the power of Rome was brought against the church, and who is still standing today? We are. We're still standing and we're growing and the word of God is not chained in this world. It's not chained in Iran. It's not chained in China. It's not chained in Pakistan. It's like like all these places. It's like we think that the power structures are dictating what's happening in the world and it's not. God's spirit is moving in the world. Arthur Glasser said this, what this means is that Christians in the world have a role to fill that non-Christians cannot possibly fill. They have to break the fatality that hangs over the world through reflecting in every way the victory that Christ has gained over the powers. Your job is to go into your workplace and coffee shop and school halls and friend groups and break the fatality that is lingering over the world you have to bring forward the kind of life that gets, it, uh, gets out of the way of God's work and lays itself down so that that death that's hanging over our world right now gets broken. And you don't break that death by breaking you, you break it by dying in it. <laughs> Jesus said, come to me and die. Pick up your cross, follow me. I love that, that reflecting in every way the victory that Jesus gained over the powers. You are to be a sign of the new covenant, a demonstration that the new order has entered the world, giving meaning, direction, and hope to history. Not just to your private life, to history. The work of Jesus, the new covenant, is is coming into history, into real families and real lives, into government and schools and all these places. He wants to have his say in every area of life. He's like, I want it all. I died for it all, not just for your little personal relationship with me so you can hide in the cupboard. No, 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 I want it to go out into the world, and yeah, you might suffer, you might get fired, you might lose everything and yet gain everything you've ever wanted. It's incredible. This is the gospel. So this, this work, right, is, is in the church, uh, Sayers, I've been working through this book, in the church what we're doing is we're trading superficiality for Depth. So guys, this is deep work. This isn't easy work. This isn't like self-help. This isn't like this is 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 we want to trade superficiality for depth. And he tells a story of a um, I can't remember if it's a Planet Earth documentary or it's uh, which one? It's a nature documentary. You know, the British guy. You know his voice if you've watched any nature document of david attenborough you know this guy's voice you're just like you want him just like to read you the bible every night because you're just like oh it's awesome um and so it, it shows this forest this tree falls in the forest and when the tree falls it takes out a bunch of other trees it starts to rot on the forest floor and it creates the possibility for something new to grow and that's what's happening right now in America. The, the kind of institutional church, all the agreements we had, all the stuff that used to go on has, has kind of fallen. And, and it says what happens when that tree falls is these plants shoot up really quickly. And they've got big, broad leaves, and they take in all the sun, and you think, oh, look at this. But those aren't the things that are going to last uh, because they, they popped up too quickly. And he, and he says, and all this stuff, that, that thing pops up, and then this vine pops up and starts to wrap itself around it and chokes it out. Does that sound familiar? Sound like the parable Jesus talks about, where, where these things grow really fast, and then the world, the, the, the cares of this world, the pride of life, the lust of life start to choke it out. And he says, in the midst of all this, all this is happening, and they're doing like a time lapse, and then all of a sudden, on the side, the shoot comes out. It's the, it's the last one in the race, and yet it starts growing, and this thing grows into this massive tree. And it says, the huge tree wins the race by doing something counterintuitive. While others fight for space, air, and light, it goes underground. And this is what it feels like is happening right now so much in the church. Everyone's fighting for space and air and light. Everyone's trying to respond really quickly and say, let's get relevant again. Let's, let's work things up. Let's, what, what's going to happen? And he says, this tree is underground. While the others head upwards, pushing through the surface, it goes deep. While the others pursue visibility at the expense of stability. Have you, can you feel that right now in the church? Where it feels like we have lots of visibility of famous pastors and preachers and platforms, but it all feels really unstable. Which is why so many are falling in these days. is because the thing they built couldn't sustain the resistance that our culture is coming at us with. The deep underground foundations grown by the tree ensure that it's connected to deep and unseen sources of water, nutrients, and life. Whew. Once these are secured, growth can then happen. The tree is willing to lose the initial battles in order to win the war. And this culture, which corrodes and seduces us, which erodes commitments, faith, and covenant. And you need to hear that this morning. This culture erodes our commitments and our faith and our covenant. And it does it through consumerism and materialism, through sports, through busyness, through love of money, through all the stuff. It is eroding our commitments, and our covenants, and our faith. In this culture, we need to be like the tree, the response to a culture built on superficiality, which reduces the world to a a shallow secularity. The response is depth. We need sources of life and sustenance, not found in the adulation or respect of the public. In this culture, which rips at roots, which tears foundations, we need depth, we need roots, and we need foundations. As churches, we need to move to a strategy of rebuilding. And I had a picture one of the early Wednesday nights in here that what we were doing is we were standing on the rubbles, on the foundation of the church, and God was saying, hey, pull all that out so we can get new foundations that can stand in this world. And those foundations for us were a culture of worship and prayer where God is everything. And we don't have cool strategies and techniques and lights and amazing people. We have people who are faithful and committed and loving and kind and who love his presence. They love the first commandment, which says, before you do anything else, love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And if you don't get that, don't even try to go love your neighbor because you will die trying because it'll be about you, not about me. So love me. So in the, in the church, we trade superficiality for depth. In the world, we trade rele, uh, relevance for resilience. What you're seeing is if you're trying to be relevant to the world, you are not going to have a long shelf life. Because you're trading things you don't know. How many of you have had a kid who comes home where they traded a really valuable sports card for, a, for, an, uh, for not a valuable one? I I guess the way we raised our kids, they're just too kind. And they're like, Dad, I look at this card. I'm like, you traded what? I'm like, I'm calling that kid's parent. We're getting that card back. That thing's worth $50. This one's worth 50 cents. But it's like sometimes in these days in our culture, we're trading things because we don't yet know the value of them. We're trading commitments across things where we think, oh, this is no big deal. It's going to be fine because everybody else is doing it. And we don't realize how important the things the people in front of us before us did. I realized probably 15 years ago that my parents and grandparents didn't go to church so much because they were churchy. They did it because the world wants to steal your joy and your faith and your heritage. They're like, we go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, prayer meetings on Monday, women's group on Thursdays, not because we just love to be in the four walls of the church because this life is so hard. I don't know how you do it without it. And it turns out, 20 years into the project of giving our church commitments to sports and business and nuclear families, what do we have? We have a lot of despair. We have a lot of mediocre Christianity, a lot of lukewarmness. And so in this, we need a trade relevance for resilience. In the same documentary, they're taken to a cave deep in the jungle. These caves are usually not the most inviting places for life. However, the particular uh, cave they filmed was even more inhospitable. It was in this cave that uh, ran not water, but highly corrosive acid. He notes that uh, one would think in such a caustic, dark environment, no forms of life could live. However, they do, and in such a potentially deadly environment, certain fly forms not only survive, but they thrive. Such creatures are known as as (laughs) extremophiles. Isn't that a cool term? The term covers a wide degree of species that are able to exist in extreme temperatures, live at great depth of sea, and exist in arid deserts. They have the ability to withstand huge environmental pressures and flourish. He says, as I watched the series, this term clicked with me. It captured a kind of disciple I know was needed in today's culture. Researcher Margaret Wheatley discovered that even in the most dysfunctional and toxic of workplaces and environments, a certain kind of person and leader could be found. These people were not affected by their environments. Weeley noted that their ability to thrive in caustic environments was linked to their ability to find a sense of meaning outside their environment. In a caustic, corrosive culture, which causes us to question and doubt our commitments, we need these kind of disciples, disciples who are resilient. Have you ever met somebody who has joy in the midst of struggle, who stays calm in the midst of intensity? You ever been in a meeting where people are getting intense, they start yelling, and somebody's in there just like chill and relax, and you're like, what? Who are you? What's happening to you? Right? You, you, you've got to figure out how to live in a, in a place where it is highly oppositional. It feels like your stakes are really high for the words you use. Right? Like, like for, for all this stuff around race and gender and religion in the world, it feels like I'll just be quiet because if I speak, I might make a mistake and it might risk my whole livelihood and said, how do I become the kind of person who can live in these environments without anxiety, without ego, right? Who can like be calm because my life is tethered to a reality where there's, there's no risk to, to my real life. My citizenship in heaven, my value, my worth, Jesus settled it on the cross. I don't need these things. I can be here in the Christian life and today I think we need disciples who are resilient and deep, the last one, and, and we'll we'll wrap up is that the word of God's not chained; it's not bound, um, not only by our power structures in this world or your circumstances, but also in your ability to fix yourself. I think this is really key. It is I think in today we hear so many voices about how you can fix your life, about how you can sleep better, work out better. I mean, you just get on uh, Twitter. I don't know how many of you are on Twitter or YouTube or whatever. There's just like a guru for every part of your life right now. If you do this, you'll sleep better, walk faster, work harder. You know, it's like all these things. It's like, take this patch, put this thing and connects to your iPhone. You'll ding. I mean, it's just like this whole thing is about, you can maximize your life. And the key there is you. You can live in a way that makes your life better than everyone around you. and makes you the envy of all these people. And you're going to fix yourself. And you know how you're going to fix it? By adding all this stuff to your life and trying really hard to fix it. And it turns out, it doesn't really work that way. Paul says this, "...to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What do you think Paul would think of Instagram after you read that statement? Can we just have like an honest conversation? What if this week you turned your Instagram to boast about your weaknesses, to make public confession of your sins? Because what is Instagram? It's your highlight reel. It's to prove to everyone in your life how good things can be in your life. And it's to deflect all the pain that's happening in the world and in you. And you know how you're addicted to somebody something? This is how you know you're addicted to something, is how much resistance you give when people ask you to give it up. It's amazing when I'm like, why don't you just give that up? They're like, oh, I, I get this laundry list of, of how good social media is and how great Netflix is and, and all this stuff. And, I, and I'll just tell you, friends, the more I give that stuff up, the happier I am. And it's not because it's all ultimately evil, but it, it, it's because there's a lot of evil in me, and those things capture that stuff, and it works into me. And the more I get rid of that stuff, the more there are room there is for family and joy and focus and worship and being outdoors and staring at a tree rather than staring at a screen. And it's amazing how much God talks to you when you stare at trees. And how little He talks to you when you stare, when you do this. right? And again, this isn't because we're bad people, but it, it just shows that, like, in some ways, we're trying to fix something about ourselves and how we're engaging the world. And, and Paul is saying, "Listen, I don't know from now on, I've learned a different way. As I boast about my weakness, something happens in me that my heart gets opened up to God's power." What does Paul get for this? He gets power and grace. What do most of us walk through the world desiring? We want like power to live, and we want grace for our mistakes, failures, sin, wounds, lies, addictions, abuse, all that stuff. We just, I, I guys, I, I want grace on grace on grace on grace. But when I boast in myself and my own power, my own ability to fix myself, I don't get grace. I get people say, oh, great job, Jonathan. You're really awesome. And then you know what I have to do? I've got to go do it again. It actually sets myself up for performance, and I'm on the hamster wheel just... I got to keep it up, because if I let it go, they're going to find out I'm not who I said I was. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I made a statement to—Todd a, a Lovelace made this statement last week, and he said, uh, The higher you go in leadership, the less choices you have. So many people want to be leaders because they think you get more choices, and you actually get less choices. I mean, so you get authority, you get the ability to do certain things, but there's other things you can't do. Because I'm a leader of a church, there's certain things I can't do and I can't say. Because God has bound me, because I put at risk all the things that he's tethered to me. My family, my children, this church. And so there's a lot of things I just can't comment on. And do you know how hard that is for me? If you know me, I'm an opinionated person. I love debate, I love to talk, I love to get myself in trouble for talking. So you know, my sister and brother-in-law, they would confirm I was a trash talker. I was like, blah, 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 blah. and I always had bigger, older cousins who were protecting me, but I was the guy like starting fights. So I was like, bah, 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 bah. like then I'm like back away and I'd be like, that worked, You know, hope I never see that guy again by myself. Um, and so it's like this thing about like, oh, like, Lord, like I just need to, I need to embrace this fact of how you want to uh, want to constrain me in certain ways. And I had this thought last year, or maybe a year and a half ago, that, that if I want to go to the places God wants to take me, I have to not just receive the rod, the discipline, I've got to love it. If you want spiritual authority, if you want real authority, you can't just receive discipline and correction, you actually have to love it. You have to invite it, you have to ask for it, and you have to take it in ways that doesn't feel good, and you didn't ask for it, and you didn't want it, and it was weird timing, and person didn't say it perfectly, and you just say, God, this is going to grow me. Thank you. Thank you that my weakness invited someone to give me something where I needed to change. If you do that, I promise you, you will start to grow in ways that you could not imagine. If you reject that, you will start to shrink in ways Um, which will not be great. The more you embrace and admit your weaknesses, the more opportunity God has to work, and the more you get to participate in his work, where he gets the glory and does things that you're like, I can't believe that happened. It's amazing. Uh, I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to wrap up. This thing, the word of God's not bound. Um, I love this idea in Peter. I mentioned it before. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be controlled, self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in what? Not in yourself, standing firm in the faith, because that you, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. So here's the interesting, interesting choice. You either wait on God and he restores you and make you strong, or you go out and you fix it yourself. Like uh, like he gives us, he's like, either you wait on me after you've waited and suffered a little while, I promise you I'm gonna show up. And when I do, I will restore you and make you strong. Or you can go off on your own and you can try to fix it and make it work and cover it up and strengthen all the little things. And it's God's like, no, 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 that's not the thing. He'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In a culture where everyone's, everything's shaken, if you'll allow him, God will come and make you strong and firm and steadfast. When everybody else is worried about the economy and about politics and about disease and pandemics and famines and war and all this stuff, you will be moving through life steady and firm and steadfast. Not because you know it all, but because you know the one who knows it all. You know the one who holds all the power and you trust him. And here's the fascinating thing when he says the word of God is not chained, it just uh, triggered in the prayer room. So me pray this, but Jesus is the word of God. Isn't that fascinating? So what is the the word of God's not chained? His word that you can read and speak, that's not chained. But actually the person who is the word is not chained right now. This is key. He couldn't be held by death. He could not be chained. He went into that grave. He took his life back again. He walked out. And right now he stands at the right hand of the father. What is he doing? He's praying for you. So Paul in his chains, I think he knew and I think he worshiped and he could see Jesus saying, Paul, hold on. Hold on. I'm coming. Don't despair. I'm working. This is all going somewhere that has meaning and purpose and will have power and it will all be worth it someday. I think Paul in his prayers like, thank you, Jesus, that even though I am chained, I see you and you're not chained. Would you stand to your feet? I want you just to take a moment. And would you just close your eyes just for a second? And would you just engage in a, in a response just real quick, and then we'll sing and we'll wrap up. But is there a circumstance in your life right now that you feel chained? That you feel like, I don't have the ability to change this one thing. finances, or it could be around your children, it could be around your parents, it could be around a conflict with someone, or a dating relationship, or your school, but your future vocation, and you're like, I just feel bound, and I don't know what to do. If you, like, in your mind's eye, if you could, like, picture that thing, if you could almost, like, see it then can I encourage you with your eyes closed but like looking through the spirit can you look past that thing and can you see Jesus right now standing in the throne room at the right hand of the father this mediator who lives to make intercession for you who broke the bonds of death who ransomed you can you see him morning as we worship as you look at him as you see him as you acknowledge the fact that even though this part of your life might feel chained you see his hands are free he's not chained the goal of this response time is to get you to a place where you can say over that circumstance over that power structure over your inability to fix yourself can say over it Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I cast this anxiety, this care, this circumstance, that person, this thing that happened to me, I cast it on you. I humble myself this morning. in all things this morning we desire to trust you to lay these things down to receive the bonds that we may have that you haven't fixed yet and trust you with them and of course Lord we trust you to break any bonds that you choose to break we know you could just snap your fingers and break any bonds we have and if that's your will today we will bless that God. Anyone in this room you want to free in a moment we bless that and yet we know Paul says he begged three times for that thing to be taken away and yet you said just wait my glory and my power and my grace is working its way into you through that thing so don't remove it yet don't overstep look at me that's what I feel like he's saying this morning look at me look at me. Look at my face. I'm not scared. I'm not disappointed. I'm not anxious or worried. Look in my eyes. Look at my face. What do you see? You see that I love you and that I'm for you and that I'm working. I don't take glory in the pain, but I know I'm doing, trust me, trust me, so thank you, Jesus, that you're trustworthy, yeah, so this morning, we're going to open the altars, if you have anything you need to pray about, you can come pray at the altars, we'll have prayer team down front, if you're like, I just need prayer, I need help in this circumstance, or "I'm, I'm working in a power structure in my business, or in education, or something else, I just need somebody to pray over me, that I can be resilient in this place right? Or if you've been trying to fix yourself, and God today is just saying, hey, just stop. Lay it down. Let it go. Wait on me. You don't have to fix yourself. That's my job. Let me do my job. Altars are open. We'd love to pray for you this morning. We're just going to sing for a little while.